uh, among our belongings that are still in America is, uh, I, I got this for a, a, a wedding present, uh, is this fancy coffee maker, right, that, that both grinds and, and brews coffee beans. Maybe that's sort of, yeah, old hat at, at this point. But when I got it, that was a pretty snazzy thing to have. And one of the features is a timer, right? So I can program it that it will activate at my desired time. And so beans are, are loaded in advance, ready to go. And then at the appointed time, the grinder receives them and turns them into the properly intended results. Now, we can observe a few things at this point about my coffee maker. One, it's interesting that everything it needs to do the job, it has everything that it needs to do the job, and even power can be turned on it, but it doesn't truly and fully activate until a later time determined by its owner. Uh, Second, those beans, those coffee beans, objectively... Uh, reside in the coffee maker, but only go into their proper use when they are received through the proper process. And third, and finally, someone outside of the coffee maker, namely me, has to act upon it to make those things happen, including determining that time that everything goes into effect. The point that this coffee maker stuff illustrates, uh, the point is that all this coffee maker stuff illustrates our topic for tonight about how baptism is effectual. As we've seen from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 88 and 91, word, sacrament, and prayer are God's outward and ordinary means of grace, all which, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. The sacraments become effectual because of the word, the spirit, and our faith. And so how does that, those principles then apply specifically to baptism? And we have to strike a balance here, don't we? There's a few delicate things to, to bring together. On the one hand, a lot of evangelicals are, are so afraid, uh, really, of, of actually the church having any real function other than facilitating personal mystical experience and afraid of any sort of formal ceremony that they they downplay sacraments so much to mean basically nothing. It's something we do that's nice for us. Indeed, if we believe the sacraments are primarily our actions rather than God's actions of doing something to us, I mean, in that way of thinking, there is indeed a rationale for why not replace them with something I like more? We believe, with Scripture, however, that God works in these means of grace. And so they are important ways of communing with Him, since He is at work in them and has appointed them for His purposes. So there's one side of the things we have to navigate. On the other side, Protestantism has had a long-standing dispute to put it mildly, with Roman Catholic views wherein the sacraments work in themselves apart from word, spirit, and faith. And to complicate that problem today, some in Reformed denominations have so overreacted to that first 
low evangelical view of sacraments that they've adopted essentially Roman view of sacramental efficacy. So we then need to be careful to to state and affirm both what baptism does and does not do. Heidelberg Catechism, 72 to 73, helps us avoid an an overemphasis, highlighting Christ as baptism's true substance. And we remember the driving force amongst all of these sermons is that how the means of grace are God's tools of applying Christ and his benefits to his people. And so the Catechism asks two questions. Is then the external baptism washing away of sin itself? Well, not at all. For the blood of Jesus Christ only and the Holy Ghost cleanse us from all sin. Why then does the Holy Ghost call baptism, as we read in Titus, the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? Answer, God speaks thus, not without great cause, to wit, not only thereby to teach us that as the filth of the body is purged away by water, in that way our sins are removed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, but especially that by his divine pledge and sign he may assure us that we are spiritually cleansed from our sins, as really we are externally washed with water. So baptism then, we see right there, is God's pledge to you. Right? Just as sure, that just as surely as water cleanses your body, just as much as that is reality, Christ's blood cleanses your soul. In baptism, God promises you that Christ's work is effectual to reconcile you to Him as a believer. Still, baptism conveys that promised cleansing to believers. So we avoid too low a view of baptism and and understand how it effectually applies Christ and His benefits without thinking that baptism itself regenerates everyone that receives it. And then we can think about, well, how is it effectual, though, how do we how do we get to the other side of this, affirming its efficacy? Well, listen to Westminster Confession 28.6. I'm almost done with the confessional stuff. The efficacy of baptism, I think this phrase is so interesting. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment wherein it was administered. Yet, notwithstanding... By the right use of the ordinance, the greatest promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongs unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, namely the elect, in his appointed time, namely when he calls them effectually to faith. So we see now, I hope, why we started with my coffee maker. That coffee maker has all it needs to do its job. It contains beans as baptism objectively contains Christ's blessings. It can also make those beans into coffee as baptism can apply Christ and his blessings to believers. And the key thing is that those beans have to be received 
in the right way. Namely, by going through the grinding process, like baptism's benefits must be received by being effectually called to faith in Christ. Just like I set a timer on the coffee maker so it becomes effectual at the appointed time to its end, God has set a time when he will make baptism effectual. Not necessarily tied to the moment when it's administered, but will make it effectual to his elect by calling them to faith. So, our main point is that baptism conveys cleansing from Christ's blood to believers. Baptism conveys cleansing from Christ's blood to believers. We're going to think about this in three points together. Water that cleanses, water that collects, and water that communicates Christ. Now, you might think that those sound familiar, and indeed, they are meant to correspond to the things we considered last week, that baptism is about cleansing a community and comfort. And so here, we're, we're really, in a way, mirroring some of that, trying to, to focus in on the way that God uses baptism to accomplish those things that it symbolizes. So first, let's think about water that cleanses. And this, this point is, is really just about connecting God's baptism to God's word and spirit. We, we can see in scripture that it says baptism has results. So we can think of Acts 2.38. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for, namely meaning unto the result of, the forgiveness of your sins. And, noting another result, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, though, so we see Peter seems to suggest it does something, and yet all the same in Acts 8, not that long after this, we have this story about Simon the Magician. Right? And it shows how his baptism doesn't itself work, interestingly, as if baptism were magic. Right? So, so we read of Simon, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. But when they believed, so jumping ahead a little bit, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, here's the thing. Simon then comes and thinks that you can buy the Holy Spirit. Let me give you some money, Peter, so that I can do these tricks that you do. He's a magician after all. And so Peter rebukes Simon for attempting to buy the Holy Spirit's power as if it's some other magician's trade item. And he says to Simon, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And we already read, baptisms for the forgiveness of sins, right? 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquities. It's interesting, I think, that Simon was a magician, thinking he could purchase the Spirit as if the Holy Spirit's a trick deck of cards, right? At some magic shop down the road. And also interesting is that this magician received baptism. Indeed, the apostles were eager to apply the sacrament, even when it resulted later in an obvious discipline case. But the sacrament itself, well, it didn't end up being effectual for him, did it? So we cannot presume that baptism is water that works by itself. And so we ask, why is that? Why is that? Because we've already considered a few weeks ago how God's Word and Spirit must empower that water to make it effectual in God's appointed time. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 25 to 26, uh, an exhortation that husbands should have Christ-like love. Then explaining what that looks like. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now here we see, Christ washes his church with true water. I mean, this seems like water. We saw last time, right, in John 4, that Jesus is the one who, who truly, ultimately baptizes as his ordained officers administer the sacrament. But this water, when it's delivered specifically, effectually by Christ, that truly purifies, is, what does Paul say, water with the word. It's word empowered and consecrated by the scripture kind of water. It's a water that has the word in it. And so too, though, The Spirit must work in this Word-powered water to make it effectual to cleanse us to salvation by bringing us to faith, right? That's that's how this comes about. So we read, we read in Titus 3, and and here verses 4 to 7 say, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, now that's interesting, that's a, a pretty outright affirmation of Christ's deity that God is the Savior, Because Jesus is the Savior. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Showing how The washing with the Word, this Word-powered washing, has to happen by the Spirit's power unto renewal of our hearts that we might believe. Paul continued, whom he poured out. Notice again how how, uh, when God (laughs) cleanses his people by the Spirit, he he sprinkles or pours water on us, just to to drive the point home once again. Uh, The Spirit, he he um, sorry, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified grace, not not by works or bare sacrament, but God's grace bringing us to faith, sealed by a sacrament, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we see, admittedly, a complexity here, but I hope a beautiful one. A complexity to baptism wherein it is water that works, but works not on its own, but when and how God determines by infusing it with the power of his word and spirit. When God infuses word and spirit into baptism, it becomes water that cleanses, water that washes, water that is of regeneration, the washing of regeneration and renewal. And he does so by Christ's blood. So baptism is a water that works in cleansing. And now, let's think about our second point, a water that collects. Because last time we saw in our second point that baptism initiates us into the visible church. It's the sign of admission. So it's a community sacrament. And so having established the connection of of baptism to God's Word and Spirit, we just want to press further into how, even more so, baptism is effectual. So we have thought about, um, in a previous sermon, about preaching as a means of grace, 1 Peter 3, 18-22, noting, so that at that point, just to summarize, we noted how in verses 18 to 20, Christ himself went by the Spirit's power to preach through Noah. That's how we untangled that, that first bit. And uh, Peter then closed verse 20, stating that Noah's ark saved his family by bringing them safely through water. So that's, that's where we've come so far. Picking up at verse 21, Peter reflecting. So what he's, what he's doing in the next little section here is reflecting on how the ark is a means of salvation. He wrote, baptism, which corresponds to this, namely corresponds to the ark bringing the family safely through water, now saves you. That's a pretty pointed claim about the sacrament. And we can't just dodge it. So that's, that's really the driving force of, of this sermon is we can't sort of lean into our, just our traditional position without reckoning deeply with the scripture. So, but Peter helps us. It's, how does it save us? He tells us, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not just about the external thing. But as, it saves us as, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. There are several points we, we need to mark to help us understand here. And there's a lot going on, uh, and, and I hope it's exciting for you. So the first thing is, is if we trace out a rather dense explanation, baptism, cor- uh, baptism corresponds... Or maybe we could say in a different way, baptism is a fulfillment of when Christ preached through Noah, then saved him and his family through water. So we see that, uh, one, that's already connected to the word. Christ was preaching, and then God saved them through water. 
And then we also see another baptism where God baptizes the whole family, namely Noah's, uh, on the basis of one parent's faith, namely Noah's. Again, supporting how believers and their children have it right to the sign of admission into the visible church. And, And in this respect, baptism corresponds to that particular covenant community in the ark because in baptism, God closes us into the new covenant community, making it a water that collects us into the church just as as God sent rain, it collected that family into the ark. The second, second thing, and this one is, is, uh, is in passing. Try to, to break up the density at least, but just to drive home a point that I've beat to death already. We might notice that, uh, the baptism where, where people were saved is one where water was sprinkled. On Noah and his family, right? Rain fell on the ark, but those who died were fully immersed. As was the case when Paul said Israel was baptized into Moses as they walked on dry land through the Red Sea. But Pharaoh's army was fully immersed. So, full immersion seems to be for those to whom God does not take kindly. Whereas sprinkling is for his cherished people. Third, more directly, we do see how baptism saves. It's not an external washing. Harking back uh, to all we said about the need for the word and spirit to make baptism effectual. A a bare application of water, even, even as a properly administered baptism, well, that cannot itself save. Baptism does save, Peter tells us, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does that, what does that mean? Peter doesn't say that you get baptized having a good conscience, as, as in some ways Baptists are claiming in that, in that way, claiming that baptism is our profession of faith. Peter said, rather, because if we pay close attention, Peter said baptism itself is an appeal to God for the result of, not on the basis of, but for a good conscience. Namely, baptism is God's own mark that He puts upon people when God sees His baptized people, he is reminded of his promise to give them new life. Those among his visible church who are sealed by baptism and not yet regenerated have a signal on them, calling God's attention to them to summon them to faith and give them a good conscience. Baptism saves because it calls God to his covenant promises to save you and your children as the water that collects us into Christ. And that brings us to our third point. So we, we saw it's a, it's a water that in God's appointed time, God uses to cleanse us as he infuses word and spirit into those 
specially appointed waters. And then we see how it is a water that pulls us into God's covenant community and so marks us with God's own signal to himself to work salvation for us. And now we come to our final point. Water that communicates Christ. And this is at the heart of all of it. That this is water that applies Christ and his benefits to people. Having seen that connected to preaching, baptism saves essentially as God's appeal to himself to save us. Well, Peter tells us then, he closes this little section, telling us that baptism's power for this sort of salvation comes through Christ's resurrection. Baptism is stagnant water, if not charged by the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. When God sets the the program timer on a baptism, like I set a coffee maker to activate... At the proper time, the energy of Christ's resurrection life runs from the word preached through the word-shaped water given to you as you entered the church and gives you Christ, gives you life. If you entered the church by profession of faith, then at that moment, it's at that moment that you receive this sort of baptism. If you're the child of a believer, then we wait in hope that indeed God has set the timer on your baptism so that at his appointed time, Christ's resurrection life will flow from the preached word that you have so often heard right through your baptismal waters to your soul to renew you on faith so that you receive Christ as your salvation. All the same, all the same. I think at the end of the day, we, hopefully this is useful, and yet we're not here to get lost in the details of baptism. No, but to get up in how baptism makes us taste of Christ. Although baptism happens once, we, we read together this morning about how we improve our baptism, showing us one, it's something that God does. And if, if it was something we do, how would we right, improve something we've done, right? We're working with something God has given us, showing how baptism happening once is still relevant all our life long. Like a birthmark labels you as part of a, a specific family, baptism says that Christ is your older brother, in whose likeness we are being remade by faith. We look through the baptismal waters to see how God does not love those who are clean, but makes clean those whom he loves. Loves in Jesus Christ, forgiving our sin, binding us to his family, and receiving us into everlasting life. Let's pray.